Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Alan Cross, and this summer we thought we would do something special with the Ongoing History Podcast and give you, our fantastic audience, a bonus episode every Sunday from now through Labor Day. We're going all the way back to the spring of 2010 and a 15-part deep dive into the history of Alternative Rock. It's the History of Alt-Rock series. So every Sunday, you'll get a brand new episode of this series that examines every single facet of Alt-Rock from the 1950s right up to, well, pretty much today. And don't worry, because we'll have a brand new episode of the Ongoing History Podcast for you every Wednesday as well. So you're getting two podcasts every week now through Labor Day. I hope you enjoy. And thanks for supporting the Ongoing History of New Music. The early 70s were like a bad hangover from the 60s. The hippie generation had its victories, you know, civil rights, women's rights, the pill, the end of the draft, end of the Vietnam War. But there was also a sense that the whole peace and love approach to social change had pretty much played itself out. Meanwhile, the 60s generation had grown up, graduated, moved on, settled down, and basically got on with the business of being adults. They were dealing with the first oil crisis, inflation, recession, the Cold War, unemployment, the shootings at Kent State, and a corrupt American president who was forced to resign. Rock music, which had been a big part of these sweeping social changes, was tired. The good vibes of Woodstock were destroyed by the violence of Altamont. The Beatles had broken up. Jim, Jimmy, and Janice were dead. And the last people wanted to hear was music with any kind of a message. But underneath this somber conservative mood, something radical was happening. Sometimes things have to get really, really, really bad before somebody says, right, that's enough. I'm going to do something about this. And that's exactly what happened. This is the Complete History of Alt-Rock, Chapter 3. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and we're up to Chapter 3 in this series on the history of alternative rock. On the last shows, we talked about how some ultra-fringy players were getting along, people like Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and the New York Dolls. And in retrospect, these are incredibly important people to our story. But back then, in the grand scheme of things, nobody cared. They were completely outside the mainstream. They were weirdos who made music for other weirdos. The only real exception to this rule was David Bowie, although he was a much bigger star in the UK than he was in North America. Because he did things like wear makeup and dresses, some record stores refused to stock his albums. People eventually came around, but Bowie played to a lot of empty seats in America in those days. The biggest international rock acts in the early 1970s were Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Rolling Stones, Elton John, and as unbelievable as it sounds today, Grand Funk Railroad. Yeah, go look them up. But even they were exceptions. Many fans had deserted the mind-blowing acid rock and the hard-driving funk and the soulful R&B of the 60s and decided to go all soft. The word everyone was using was mellow, James Taylor. Bread, Olivia Newton-John, Paul Simon, the California Rock of the Eagles, a new-look Fleetwood Mac. Meanwhile, the movie American Graffiti and the debut of the show Happy Days kicked off the revival of the 1950s. Somehow people began to associate the 50s as the good old days, forgetting completely that the specter of atomic war had everybody building bomb shelters in their backyards. 
50s music was everywhere. And AM radio had devolved into playing stuff like this. This was the number one song of 1974, and it was from a guy who had his last hit in 1959. What a lovely way of saying how much you love me. Now, we can spend hours going on about the bad music on the radio in the early 1970s. People like Freddie Fender and Billy Swan and Paper Lace. But let's not. There was some experimentation. The early 70s was the age of prog rock, ultra-complex constructions made by virtuo musicians in super-sophisticated recording studios. It was a melding of rock and classical music that was escapist and fantastical and bombastic and often completely over the top. But prog rock was not for everyone. In some circles, it had a rep of being, uh, well, self-indulgent rubbish. Put this all together. The miserable failure of the peace and love ideals of the 60s, the bad economy, the cancer of mellow, bad AM radio, and the self-indulgence of prog rock, and certain groups of people in certain places on the planet began to get really, really pissed off. Although the New York Dolls were a commercial failure and were eventually torn apart by drugs and alcohol after just two albums, they served a very real purpose. Their outrageous image, their bad attitude, and their amateurish playing acted as a catalyst. They began a unification of musical weirdos starting in New York. The Hells Angels used to hang out at a dive located beneath the very inappropriately named Palace Hotel at 315 Bowery at Bleecker in Manhattan. It's a very dark, dingy place, long, narrow room, 167 feet long, only 25 feet wide. And if you were brave enough to enter the club's legendary bathrooms, which probably had the worst plumbing in all of New York, you had to squeeze past this small stage. The owner of the club was a 42-year-old ex-Marine named Hilly Crystal, and when he bought the club, he named it after his music policy, the kinds of acts he would book, country, bluegrass, and blues, and other music for uplifting gourmandizers. That was abbreviated to just CBGB Omfug, and then shortened to just CBGB. Now, at the time, it would have been difficult to find a worse address in all of New York. See, the city was literally broke, and the Bowery was one of the worst parts of town. The place was literally surrounded by flop houses and halfway houses and drug dens filled with literally thousands of Vietnam vets with post-traumatic stress disorder and heroin junkies, ex-convicts, and mentally ill people of all stripes. Oh, and the place stunk. Stale wine and beer, urine, feces, you name it. It was one of the crappiest places where you could possibly open a bar in New York City in the winter of 1973. But... For whatever reason, Hilly Crystal decided that he'd go ahead anyway. He had managed a successful jazz place not too far away called the Village Vanguard, so it wasn't like he didn't know what he was doing. Hilly's ironclad music policy didn't last for long, thanks to a couple of would-be poets. Tom Verlaine and Richard Hell found Hilly working on a ladder as he adjusted the awning outside the club in March of 1974. They were refugees from a band called the Neon Boys, who had just regrouped under the name Television. They were into a new type of unusual rock and roll. There were a couple of places for bands like them and their fans to hang out, but there was no real center for this scene. Unless you wanted to count the Mercer Art Center. Now this place, the Mercer Art Center, was part of the Broadway Central Hotel. The New York Dolls played there, and it had become something of a hangout for these weirdos. But then it fell down. It, it literally fell down. One Friday in August of 1974, the building creaked and cracked and then collapsed into the street. Four people died, and 19 people were hurt. 
And that was the end of the Mercer Art Center. This new weird music was homeless, which is where CBGB comes into the picture. Hey, they called up to Hilly on the ladder. We like what you're trying to do. Could we maybe play your club? After thinking about it, Hilly gave them Sunday night, the slowest night of the week. They could charge a buck at the door. As it turned out, Verlaine and Hell were lying. They weren't into country, bluegrass, or blues at all. They were part of that weirdo scene. Still, on March 31st, 1974, television played their first gig, and the real era of CBGB had begun. And like I said, the cover charge, one dollar. Television with the brilliant Marquee Moon. That Sunday night residency became one of the best nights of the week for CBGB. The crowd that had been displaced by the collapse of the Mercer Art Center reconvened there. And to everybody's surprise, the scene started to get bigger. Within a few months of television's debut, Hilly decided to institute a rock-only policy. And some of the most unlikely bands started showing up. One of the weirdest was four guys in leather jackets and torn jeans who played what sounded like 60s bubblegum pop at a million miles an hour. That's next. This is chapter three of a series called The Complete History of Alt-Rock. About six months after television started their residency at CBGB, a very odd group showed up. The date was August 16th, 1974. It's one of the big events in new rock history, but at the time, nobody noticed. This was the night a primitive, ragged, and decidedly goofy-looking bunch of guys in leather jackets and torn jeans played CBGB for the first time. They were called the Ramones. John Cummings was squeaky clean. He went to military college, collected baseball cards, and voted Republican. He had been in love with the guitar ever since he saw the Beatles play on Ed Sullivan back in 1964. Almost 10 years to the day later, he had a new friend named Douglas Colvin an ex-hairdresser and future heroin addict who sometimes turned tricks on 53rd Street to earn money to score. They went for beers at a strip club, they got drunk, and they decided that they should form a band. So, after spending $250 between them on a guitar, a bass, and an amp, they held their first rehearsal four days later. Their drummer was a six-foot, six-inch skinny guy named Jeff Hyman, an OCD-suffering refugee from a failed band called Sniper. Their first gig was in March, and by July it became obvious that Jeff was a better singer than a drummer, so he moved out front. And their manager, Tommy, a recording engineer who once worked with Jimi Hendrix, took over on drums. There were some um, aesthetic changes, too. Everybody adopted a tough leather jacket and jeans look, and everybody had a stage name. Jeff became Joey, Douglas was Dee Dee, John was Johnny, and Tommy stayed Tommy. And as a symbol of their brotherhood, they all adopted the same last name, Ramon. And no, they weren't brothers. They took that name because, um, well, let's get them to answer the question. We like, we like to um, fib about it, but uh, the truth is that um, Dee Dee uh, was, was a big fan of Paul McCartney and the Beatles, and um, in the days of the Silver Beatles, Paul McCartney used to check on two hotel rooms uh, using the alias Paul Ramon. And Dee Dee was such a big Paul McCartney fan that he uh, started, he changed his name to Dee Dee Ramon because of the days of the Silver Beatles, what Paulie did. So um, when we met Dee Dee, like, he was calling himself Dee Dee Ramon. And when we think of a name for the band, we thought, oh, 
the Ramones, that, that'd be kind of unique. And um, That's how it started. Yeah, and then, so we um, we all, like, used our, our first names, and Ramones kind of signifies unity or... Family. Family, gang. brother, yeah. gang, brotherhood, all that crap. So um, here we are, the Ramones. On August 16th, 1974, the Ramones opened for television. Or they might have been opening for two other bands. No one really remembers because there were just six people in the bar. Well, seven, if you want to count Hilly. Eight, if you want to count his dog. They played 20 songs in 17 minutes, including this one. Blitzkrieg Bop, one of the first songs to figure into the myth and cult of the Ramones. And like I said, at its core, this music was bubblegum pop mixed with 60s garage rock played at a million miles an hour. But the Ramones did not impress any of the people that first night at CBGB. They fought between songs. Strings broke. Songs started and stopped in the wrong places. They were awful. Look funny, but the Ramones weren't trying to be funny. They were really, honestly, trying to be serious. But like I said, the torture did not last long. The whole set was over in literally 17 minutes. Now, to be fair, the Ramones didn't think too much of CBGB either. The stage was too small. They thought Hilly needed to bathe more. And they hated how his dog, all the rats and all the mice, crapped all over the place. They didn't think much of the clientele either. Because the bathrooms were so awful, many patrons elected to relieve themselves where they stood. If they were polite, they wandered over into a corner. But with no place else to play, the Ramones returned to CBGB 22 more times before the end of 1974. And by the beginning of 1975, they were starting to attract some weird kind of attention. One person who remembers those early days was Tina Weymouth, the bass player for a future CBGB band called The Talking Heads. There were always arguments um, backstage with, you know, in the early days for the Ramones when people would complain that the Ramones didn't play long enough. They would say, well, they only played 45 minutes and the contract said they were supposed to play for an hour. And, uh, you know, the reasoning was, well, they play an hour's worth of material in 45 minutes because they don't do any stage patter between. All that mattered, though, was that the Ramones began to draw in the crowds. CBGB was becoming the center of a new scene featuring bands with names like Blondie and Suicide and The Talking Heads and a television spin-off band called The Heartbreakers. People were also talking about a thin, intense poet from New Jersey named Patti Smith. She had been giving these hip, avant-garde poetry readings on St. Mark's Place in the Village since 1971. Then she met Lenny Kay, a record store clerk, and he would noodle on his guitar as Patti recited her poems. This led to a suggestion by her friend, an artist named Robert Mapplethorpe, that she make some recordings of these poetry readings that she could maybe sell in some of the cooler bookshops in the village. It's a good idea. So on June 5th, 1974, Patty released a thousand copies of a seven-inch single on Mapplethorpe's tiny independent label. Side A was called Hey Joe and written as a tribute to kidnapped newspaper heiress Patty Hurst. But it was the B side that attracted all the attention. Because they had some time and money left after recording Hey Joe, someone suggested that Patty read a poem that she had written about a dead-end job that she once held. Her musician friends just vamped along in the background as she read this poem. This afterthought recording grabbed the attention of the New York avant-garde underground. 
Those thousand copies were quickly snapped up, and for the first time in a long time, a poet had everyone's attention. I get my nerve up, I take a swig of Rome Alar, and I walk up to hot shit dot hook, and I say, hey, hey sister, it don't matter whether I do labor fast or slow, there's always more labor after. She's real Catholic, see? She fingers her cross and she says... Patty Smith and Piss Factory from 1974. That just might be the first true punk record. Oh, there's that word again, punk. Where did that come from? How did it end up being used to describe a certain type of rock music? This is a bit of an entomological mystery. Hundreds of years ago, the word punk was used to describe a young male gangster, a hood, a ruffian. The first use of the phrase punk rock appears to have been in the Chicago Tribune on March 22, 1970. Ed Sanders, the founder of a New York-based weirdo band called The Fugs, had released a solo album called Sanders Truck Stop. And in this interview, he described his record as punk rock redneck sentimentality. In December 1970, the Detroit-based music magazine called Cream ran an article from a critic named Lester Bangs who referred to Iggy Pop as that stooge punk. From there, we go back to New York to a musician named Alan Vega. He was in a band called Suicide, and they took that Cream reference and started calling their gig Punk Masses. Then it's back to Cream magazine in May of 1971, when a writer named Dave Marsh called Question Mark and the Mysterians purveyors of punk rock. After that, the term started popping up in other newspapers, other magazines, and in liner notes. The problem was that no one really knew what anybody meant by punk rock. By the middle 70s, the term was being thrown around very carelessly, very liberally. Patti Smith was called a punk. But then so was Aerosmith and Bruce Springsteen and even the Rolling Stones. Even the Bay City Rollers were called punks. It's all very confusing. Meanwhile, things were starting to evolve at CBGB. A scene was developing and some people started calling this new stripped down sound street rock. But that didn't have much of a ring to it. But then at the end of 1975, a new fanzine appeared. This fanzine was dedicated to singers like Lou Reed and groups like the Ramones who appeared at CBGB. It also covered Iggy Pop and the Stooges, the New York Dolls, and even some of the raw primitive garage bands from the 60s like uh, Question Mark and the Mysterians. Now at first, this fanzine was supposed to be called Teenage News after an unreleased song by the New York Dolls. Instead, they got inspired by a picture of another New York band called The Dictators. This was on the inside of their 1975 album, Go Girl Crazy. It's a shot of them at a White Castle hamburger stand wearing black leather jackets. They looked just like the troublemakers from the movies of the 1950s. Marlon Brando, James Dean, the kinds of characters that were called punks back then. Now remember, 50s nostalgia was big at the time, so these images and these words were back in use. A lot of people were talking about punks. And so, the authors of this fanzine decided to call their publication Punk. And as the CBGB scene grew bigger, circulation increased, and soon anyone who was featured in the fanzine was known as a punk artist. And the dictators? Well, they've gone down in history as the band who inspired the word that described a brand new form of stripped down rock and roll. The 
Dictators with I Live for Cars and Girls. The album is called The Dictators Go Crazy. It's still in print, and if you look in the CD booklet, you'll see that famous picture. Now, lest we think that New York was the only place where music was undergoing a much-needed transformation in 1974 and 1975, we need to make a detour to Ohio. And there was news from England. And even Australia. More in a moment. Although New York has become enshrined as ground zero for the entire punk rock revolution of the middle 1970s, the city and the CBGB scene did get some help from Cleveland. New York hipsters did not have a monopoly on being bored with mainstream rock. For example, music fans in Cleveland had been treated to performances by the Stooges and Iggy Pop and the Velvet Underground over the years, and they had all made quite the impression. Several extreme groups popped up in Cleveland. They were artsy and very anti-hippie and very anti-establishment and boldly experimental. Flower power? Screw that. Prog rock? <laughs> Pretentious silliness. Signing to a big corporate record label? Not a chance. One of these Cleveland bands, Rocket from the Tombs, eventually reorganized itself as Per Ubu. In 1975, they began to release a series of self-produced indie singles that reached a few select ears around North America and even as far away as the UK. This has become something of an indie rock classic. Recorded in early 1976, the third Per Ubu song ever to be recorded, this is called Final Solution. Per Ubu. If you were to hear that for the first time in 1976, you would have been chilled to the bone. No one was making music like that. When Ubu brought this music to New York, home of artsy soulmates like Television and Patsy Smith, they were embraced. Meanwhile, though, something weird was also happening on the other side of the planet in Brisbane, Australia. Out of nowhere, a band called The Saints released a rough, raw, garage band-like single that rocked in an entirely new way. They had obviously got their hands on some Stooges and Velvet Underground records, and they started goofing around under the name Kid Galahad and the Eternals by late 1973, early 1974. They found that they couldn't play slow, so they played fast. And by late 1975, they were out playing this song really, really fast. Now, try to imagine what it must have been like to hear a song like this coming off a record after years of dull and mindless pop. It was shocking. And amazing. I'm riding on a midnight train, but everybody does me the same. The sun is not a third of reflection. I'm lost in a final direction, and I'm stranded on my own. The Saints and I'm Stranded which first showed up as an indie single in September 1976, 500 copies, and it quickly made its way to England, where the music media had a major freakout over it. In fact, you can make a case that because of that media freakout, three bands changed the music forever in the UK, the Sex Pistols, The Clash, and The Saints. By 1975, punk rock had started germinating in New York, thanks to help from Cleveland. But what about England? We need to look at how and why bands like the Sex Pistols and the Clash were conjured into being. That's going to take some time, so we'll start on that story with Chapter 4, The English Punk Rock Explosion. Chapter 4 of The Complete History of Alt-Rock next time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. 
You've been listening to the ongoing history of new music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 